let's go to the Lord in prayer as we approach His Word. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word, we come desiring to hear the shepherd's voice, to know what He is saying, to recognize His voice. We, we must learn what His voice is like and so train our ears, train our hearts, that we might be able to discern voices that are not the shepherds by knowing His voice more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a series in John's Gospel. We're at chapter 10. Um, and the subtitle for this particular message is The Gate, the Shepherd, and the Thieves. The Gate, the Shepherd, and the Thieves. In, in this chapter, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then, of course, another familiar verse from this chapter, the thief comes to only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly, depending on translation. And, and, and indeed, this chapter is about having life and life abundantly. But, but what does that mean? Does it mean that preachers should uh, have multiple jets and 26,000 square foot homes? Does it mean that Christians should be wealthy and never get sick? Well, certainly not. On the other hand, does it only mean that we go to heaven when we die? I would say certainly not to that as well. Does it make any difference that we have eternal life, abundant life, here and now? Well, to answer this, we'll explore uh, the story behind John 10, including what people mean when they say Happy Hanukkah. Um, some people refer to Hanukkah as the, the Jewish Christmas, but <laughs> that's only because it, it, well, they celebrate it with lights and it happens at about the, the, the same time. Uh, ironically, on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, just like we do the 25th day of December, and those are the months that correspond, though they overlap a little bit, so it's not on the same day. Uh, but Christmas is as contrary to the Jewish idea of Hanukkah as Hanukkah is to the Christmas announcement of peace on earth. Understanding Hanukkah, I think, may illuminate the meaning of Jesus' pronouncement that he is the door and that he is the good shepherd. John connects the stories thematically, or this account thematically, uh, to the Feast of Dedication, or what we would today call Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah means, is dedication. And it was the Feast of the Dedication of the Temple. Um, it's as if John takes the story of the man that right after the, the, the Feast of, of uh, Tabernacles, he takes that story of the man that, that was born blind and is healed, he takes the events of Hanukkah that happened about two and a half months later, and he gets a big bungee cord, hooks them on to those two events, and just kind of pulls them together in John 10 because he keeps that connection throughout the chapter. What, what, is, what is Hanukkah, this feast of dedication? What is it all about? Well, let me give you a, a, a brief, hopefully not boring, because I'll, I'll go through it quickly, um, history lesson of it. In the year 168 B.C., the Syrian tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes, 
That's a, I mean, if you have a name like that and you're a ruler, you know you're bad, right? I mean, this guy was a bad tyrant. <clears throat> he sent his army to Jerusalem. The Syrians desecrated the temple. They sacrificed a pig on the altar. They outlawed the observance of the Sabbath and the Jewish festivals, <clears throat> as well as circumcision. And on the uh, 25th day of Kislev, the temple was renamed for Zeus. Okay? A resistance movement led by a priestly family known as the Hasmoneans, or later renamed as the Maccabees. We'll talk about that in a moment. They developed, or, 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 this movement developed against Antiochus in resistance. The, the head of the family was Mattathias. He was an elderly man, but he had uh, sons, and his son Judah became the chief strategist and military leader of the resistance. The rest of his sons died in the battles that he led, in trying to free the temple and, and, and free the city uh, accordingly. Three years after the temple had been desecrated and renamed for Zeus, to the day they rededicated the temple on the 25th day of Kislev to Yahweh. They, were, they had been seriously outnumbered, though they won two major battles despite that. They then purified, dedicated the temple. Judas... Maccabeus had fought nobly. Each year, that event was celebrated on the 25th day for eight days of Kislev, and it went for eight days. And lights were used once again as in the Feast of Tabernacles because this was now the darkest part of winter. At its heart is the idea and this celebration of purity. Judas and his family were all about pure Jewish religion. There was to be no polluting of Jewish religion, no mixing it with any culture or customs of the Gentiles. Out of that movement, a group of people were born. We know them as the Pharisees. Otherwise, you could call them the separatists. That's what their name meant. The separatists. We're, we're separated. We're pure. We're not like them. We're not allowing any of that in. And this was the very festival that celebrated their beginnings, the movement that led to it, the wars that freed the temple. It had its set of heroes, much like we have when we celebrate, say, the 4th of July. It's kind of like an Independence Day, a modern one for them at their time. At this celebration, there were two biblical themes that were prominent in their worship. They had dedication processionals recalling the reopening of the temple. So they, these dedication processionals, and we have some in the Psalms. I'll look at them a little bit later. But they were, to open the gates, let's re-enter the temple. It's now purified, it's ready for worship. And then during this time of worship, during the feast, that Israel recalled the the failed leadership of the nation and the temple that preceded, so the, the, the national leaders, the priestly leaders, that preceded Antiochus Epiphanes' capture of the temple. The idea was they were failed leaders, so if we can just get it right and pure, that won't happen to us again. Of course, it essentially, in many ways, already happened, though the temple was not desecrated. <clears throat> Ezekiel 34 launches a powerful criticism against Israel's shepherds. And that text was read during this particular week. And you'll note, if you go to Ezekiel 34, and we'll look at it briefly later, that there's a lot of parallels between what's talked about there and what's talked about in John chapter 10. 
That's intentional. Jesus is pulling on what they were talking about. Ezekiel 34 criticizes the shepherds of Israel, the kings and the priests, for their injustices. It colorfully describes their self-indulgence and how they did not take care of the weak of the flock. The Lord promised that he himself will come and shepherd the flock with justice. Now let's examine our text under three headings. The three headings are going to be the parable, the gate, and the shepherd. The parable, the gate, and the shepherd. So if you would, <clears throat> join me in, in uh, chapter 10. And, and before we jump right into the parable, of, which is verses 1 through 6, let's recall the context of what has just happened. Because remember, that little heading, chapter 10, and whatever may be written below that in bold print in your Bible, was not there originally. It just went from the end of 9 right into 10. And you'll note that there is no break in the, in the dialogue. Jesus is continuing his conversation that had uh, ended chapter 9. So let's pick up in chapter 9, verse 34. To this they replied, talking to the man who had been born blind, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they, some of the Pharisees, we, we know from verse 16, threw him out. Jesus, meaning out of the synagogue, and hence the community and worship and the temple, etc. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when, they found, when, when, when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Keep in mind, the man had never seen Jesus prior to this moment. The man asked, Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, oh, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. Now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. No break in the conversation. Very Truly, I tell you, and the NIV adds the word Pharisees there. It's not in the original, but their point is to remind us of who he's talking to, which is important. Very truly, I tell you, you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is should be a shepherd of the sheep. He's just telling a story. He's not referring to himself yet. Just telling a story. It's a shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will... Run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Now, this is a parable. Even though it's not specifically called a parable, it's called a figure of speech or whatever, you know, whatever the Greek word is for that. Just, this figure of speech is a good, good way of saying it. But don't make too much of the fact that he used some other descriptor. It's just John's choice of words. Why does Jesus use a parable? Well, for the same reason we know from other Gospels that Jesus used parables, so that those with hard hearts would not see. 
And that, in this case, would be the Pharisees. We read in Matthew 13, 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Jesus had just told the Pharisees uh, that because they claim to see, that they're guilty of sin. They're, they're in fact blind. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. Spiritually blind, though physically they can see. And in, in verse 6, we're told that they don't understand the parable that Jesus just said. Well, that's the point. But there's a second purpose for Jesus using parables, and that is to teach the truth to those who hear his voice. They're kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it is so that those who don't have right hearts don't understand, and for those who do have right hearts, who hear his voice, do understand. Verse Matthew 13, verse 16, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Jesus goes on to explain the parable. And that begins in verse 7 and following through 18, which is where we're going to spend our time today. And, and for those who hear his voice, they open up great truths about Jesus and hearing his voice. The scene that he described in the parable was familiar to the original audience from daily life. It, it isn't that the Pharisees didn't understand the story in, in itself, but that they didn't understand the point that Jesus intended to use it for. The story was simple enough because they saw it every day. Get up in the morning, watch, and you'll see it. You go out at night, you'll see this taking place. <clears throat> One key point that they missed is that they, the Pharisees, are thieves and robbers. After all, the story says uh, anyone who does not enter by the sheep pen, but uh, does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. And that's one of the driving points of the parable. They are thieves and robbers. But it would be hard to deduce from the parable alone exactly why that is. Why, why is it that he calls them thieves and robbers? Evidently, they did not enter by the gate, but climbed in some other way. But that's how does he arrive at that? You don't get that from the parable itself. You get hints at it during the explanation and in the way John casts it in John 10, especially later part of the chapter, which we won't cover in detail today. During Hanukkah, the Jews asked hard questions about failed leadership and false shepherds in Israel. So Jesus' point should not be lost on them entirely. He's, he's sharing this parable in the context of Hanukkah, according to chapter, or verse 22 of this chapter. So this parable, this story of sheep and their shepherds, I'll give you a little background to that. To this day, you, you can find the same thing. Shepherds will at night herd sheep into a walled enclosure that backs up either against a cliff or uh, maybe at the end of a canyon, so there's walls all the way around it, natural walls as it were. And these enclosures have <clears throat> these waist-high stone walls for the rest of it, and it they're topped with thorn bushes on the top. Just take thorns and, and so forth and put them on top so people won't go in, people won't go out. That, that, it's kind of like grow, growing bougainvillea across the top of your fence, okay? <clears throat> There's one small opening in the wall, and it serves as the only entrance in or out of the sheep pen. Now, the shepherd either closes that off with more thorn bushes when he goes to sleep at night, or he himself sleeps there or stays there as a watchman if he's awake, um, 
or, or, or sleep to, to protect what comes in and out of that sheep pen. The Middle Eastern shepherd is well known for having a personal devotion to his or her sheep. He, he talks to them. He sings to them. Shepherds will often carry a fl- short flute and use repeated, uh, a repeated tune so that the flock has a consistent tune that they hear to follow. One author relates uh, how a pin, a sheep pin, um, holding sheep of six to eight shepherds um, overnight can be cleared out in the morning in about five minutes as each shepherd simply comes and begins calling their sheep. And all of a sudden, the sheep come out and line up behind their shepherds because they recognize their voice. Gary Burge tells a more current story. Uh, During the Palestinian uprising in the late 1980s, an Israeli army decided to punish a village near Bethlehem for not paying its taxes, which, of course, the village claimed, well, why should we pay the taxes? You simply finance the occupation against us with our taxes. So why would we pay you our taxes? It keeps us in trouble. And, And so... The officer in command rounded up all the village animals and placed them in a large barbed wire pen. Later in the week, he was approached by a woman who begged him to release her flock, arguing that since her husband was dead, the animals were her only source of livelihood. She could not survive without them. He pointed to the pen containing hundreds and hundreds of of sheep and various animals and humorously quipped that it was impossible because he could not find her animals in the midst of all those animals. She asked that if she could in fact separate her animals uh, herself, would he be willing to let her take them home? Well, he agreed thinking that would be not possible. So she calls to her son who uh, produced a, a small reed flute. They opened the gate and he began playing his flute. And the next thing you know, 25 heads popped up in the middle of those grazing animals in that sheep pen. And she said, those are my 25. And they got them, and she went home with her sheep. Now, as we examine the the meaning of the parable, the story is plain enough, easy to understand, but as we examine the meaning, we'll do so under two headings, the next two headings, which are the gate and the shepherd. Now, we are going to discuss the thief, but he doesn't get his own heading simply because we're going to discuss him as we go along as he shows up in the text and as it's relevant to what we're discussing. So the gate and the shepherd. The gate, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly, have it in excess. Now, I would not have guessed by the parable alone that the first thing Jesus would say is, I am the gate. Now, he might have said, I am the shepherd. That would make sense based on the parable. I'm the true shepherd. But... The parable doesn't seem to define good gates versus bad gates. It it doesn't seem to make the case for that. So one might wonder, why does Jesus start by saying, I am the gate? Maybe we we, we would have suggested uh, that he would have said, I am the one who entered by the gate, since 
There's one who enters the gate. All who enter another way are false. Or maybe he would have said, I am the one for whom the gatekeeper opens the gate. But he didn't say either of those. He says, I am the gate. <clears throat> you might say, I am the entryway. I am the door for the sheep. However, given that the once blind man has just been denied entry into the synagogue and therefore denied access to both the community of God, the temple, and God's presence, Jesus not only entered the sheepfold properly, but he declares here that he's the very means of entrance into the sheepfold. Not those Pharisees. And note that the man once blind, now seen, doesn't follow the Pharisees' voice. They're thieves and robbers. They came in another way. He follows Jesus. And so they kick him out. Jesus has actually said, no, you're actually in. The fact of the matter is, they are out. The formerly blind man has nothing to fear. For he has embraced the, the very entryway into the presence and community of God. The Pharisees who had previously denied him entrance are thieves and robbers. And it's interesting, even though the blind man did not listen to them, remember who did listen to them? His parents. And ironically, they listened to the Pharisees because they're afraid that the Pharisees would boot them out of the synagogue. But in listening to them, they failed to listen to Jesus, so they are out and they are not in the true sheep pit. <clears throat> In the, in the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, they celebrated the hard-fought victory which opened the way for the temple to be cleansed and reopened. They sang psalms of dedication such as Psalm 24, where we begin in verse 7, Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. So personifying these gates and doors, speaking to them as if they're individuals. Look at me, gates. That the King of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The, the Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. The doorkeeper opens the gate for the true shepherd and lets him in. Open the gates that the king of glory may come in. And notice here in Psalm 24, it's the, the gates are opening to the king of glory. But then notice in Psalm 118, a similar psalm of dedication. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. Now we have the same gates being opened for the faithful ones who are awaiting the king. They've awaited. Now it's their time to enter and go in and out. Have fellowship with him. Jesus declares that he is the way into the temple, the presence of God. Now Jesus has already declared himself in chapter 2 to be what? The, the temple itself. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They didn't understand him because he was speaking about his own body. Now when he declares, I'm the gate, I'm the entryway to the temple. Now, I'm the temple, yes. I'm the entryway to the temple. Maybe it infers something like this. Judas, Maccabeus, and his brothers who came before were not the ones who opened the true temple. They are not the way. They simply brought more bloodshed, death, and destruction 
but I open the temple in a way that brings life and life in excess. Just a suggestion is one possible understanding that would have been at least available to them in their thinking. Now, how can Jesus be both the door and the shepherd? Because in a moment we're going to see that he says, I'm the good shepherd. Well, which is it? Are you the door or are you the shepherd? Is it possible that Jesus is using this imagery of the shepherd who lays in that opening and is the door? He's, he is the only gate, separation from the pen. Everyone goes in and out through him. So that the door actually is the shepherd, and therefore there's no difference between saying I am the door or I am the gate and I am the shepherd. If the shepherd is the door, by laying in the opening, then the idea that sheep go in and out and find pasture, which is normally associated with shepherds, well, it fits well that he be in the door, they would go in and out and find pasture, because that would make sense with that. Moses, when he was nearing the end of his career, he prayed this. He said, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out, bef- uh, to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in. Note the similarity of language there to what we've been reading there in John 10. They'll go in and out and find pasture. One who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So again, if the door is the shepherd, then that fits well with what Moses was praying for, that whole idea that that's why the door allows them to go in and out, if you will. Now the answer to that prayer in the book of Numbers that Moses prayed was in the moment, it turned out to be shortly thereafter, Yeshua, son of Nun. Joshua is what we know him as, the book of Joshua, Yeshua. He was the one that was Moses' assistant at the time of the prayer. But ultimately, the true shepherd of the sheep that would lead them out and bring them in, guiding them in life, is Yeshua, the God of Israel. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is from the Greek, Yeshua from the Hebrew, it's the same name. Now, let me just posit a thought. Do with it what you want. For those that maybe you've, you're familiar with various biblical images. Since Jesus is the new temple in John chapter 2, is the sheep pen that's discussed here in John 10, is it, in John's mind, the new Jerusalem whose gates are never shut in, in Revelation 21 and 22, allowing the true sheep to go in and out? And because they follow their shepherd, they're always kept safe and the new Jerusalem where their, their tree of life is constantly bearing fruit all seasons of the year. Never is there not fruit that we might have life. Life in abundance. Maybe. The Jerusalem that is above. What about the thief? Who's the thief? I said I'd talk about the thief, right? So who's the thief? Verse 10. We're familiar with verse 10. <clears throat> uh, Jesus says, Um, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly, have it in excess. That that thief is almost always talked about by preachers and Christians as, as if it applied strictly to the devil. The thief is the devil. We just kind of make the thief equals the devil. Well, Well, surely I would have to agree that 
the devil kills, steals, and destroys. He didn't come around giving life, right? So, yes, that's true. Uh, at some level, that's true. Uh, he is the one that, that inspires all killing, stealing, and destroying. He is the one behind wars, covetousness, and theft, and the oppression that destroys. But, but Jesus is referring to people who came before him, who either claimed to be the ones or one, either way, who granted access to God's presence, like the Pharisees. They, they would claim to be the ones who had the right to grant access in and out of the sheep pen. They're thieves and robbers. Potentially others who came before him in that vein. Um, or that others claimed were the means of access. That others thought that they were the means of access. But either way, that's who I think Jesus is referring to. Now, in Ezekiel 34, the leaders... The shepherds of the people that are condemned indulged in excess at the expense of justice and they, uh, in at the expense of care for the flock. They are thieves. The, the leaders who did not strengthen the weak or heal the sick or bind up the injured, they ruled harshly and brutally. Here in John 10, one cannot but think that Jesus is including the previous scene where the Pharisees booted out the once blind man because he wouldn't denounce Jesus. In Ezekiel 34, the sheep are scattered and become food for the wild animals. This man, but for Jesus finding him and searching for him. Notice, Jesus went searching for him and found him. We looked at this last week, right? <clears throat> but for that, he would have been scattered and available for the wild animals to attack, if you will. And here we see the same thing that's in Ezekiel 34, where in a moment we'll, we'll see below where the wolf attacks the sheep. In Ezekiel 34, abundant life occurs at the end of the chapter when the shepherd binds up the injured and strengthens the weak and makes sure that the needy get justice. You see, good shepherds also keep the sheep from plundering one another. Sheep may want to plunder one another, but good shepherds keep that from, from happening. Now, certainly abundant life, as it's described here, is eternal life. I wouldn't argue that it is not. It is eternal life, but... Eternal life is not less than the healing and justice of Ezekiel 34. It's more than the healing and the justice of Ezekiel 34. It includes all of that. To have abundant life, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is not about having our ticket punched to heaven. No. Abundant life is eternal life, as John often calls it. And we are called to have eternal life in the same way that the Father and Jesus have eternal life. The Father has life in himself. Well, that doesn't mean he's going to heaven. Like, that wouldn't even make sense, right? He is there. And the Son has life in himself. Well, surely, yes, he was going to die and he'd be raised, but it's more than that. What, what was the meaning of that when Jesus said that? For as the Father has life in himself, so is he granted the Son also to have life in himself. Well, the, the point was, therefore, the Son can grant you life, just as the Father can grant you life. And if we have life in excess, what does that mean? That means we have not only enough life for ourselves, but life that has abounded to the point that it overflows into the lives of others. There's plenty for us to share. We can just keep giving it away and we'll never run out. That's abundant life. Now, just because somebody promises life, does not mean that they have the true life to offer. There are plenty of so-called shepherds promising life today. 
but not the life of Jesus. More on that under the next heading, which is the shepherd. Let's look at that beginning in verse 11. If I could get a bottle of water, that'd be wonderful. Thank you. <clears throat> John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, so he sees the wolf coming. He abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the, the, the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, on behalf of the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. <clears throat> they too will listen to my voice, and there, will be, there shall be one flock and one shepherd. <clears throat> the reason the Father loves me, Jesus says, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Now, I am the good shepherd. We might want to think of that this way a little bit. I am the noble shepherd. Now, good's a perfectly good translation, don't get me wrong. But I think if we say, I am the noble shepherd, it'll help clear up the, the potential misconceptions that could happen. I am the honorable shepherd, we might say. Um... The noble shepherd. It, 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 it's, this word for good, it, it means good, but it's good as when we say about someone, he's a good man. Or we might say about someone, she's a good woman. Well, what do we mean by that? We mean that they have character, that deep down you can trust them, that they are the kind of person who is not in it for themselves, but they are in it for you and others, that they, they put others ahead of themselves. We we're thinking of that kind of a person, honorable, noble. Gary Burge says it this way. He says, it's important not to overly sentimentalize the image given here. This is not a portrait of a kindly man holding cuddly lambs. Good can just as well be translated noble. The shepherd's job was severe, tiring, and hazardous. Now, you can see this even from the verses because the shepherds who are not good, the hirelings, they flee at the sign of danger. They are cowardice. They are self-protecting. They are shameful. They're into it for themselves. So the, the good shepherd is the opposite of that. He's courageous, not cowardice. He's honorable, not shameful. He's caring for others, not protecting himself. In their culture, just as in ours, and someone who went to war and died for the benefit of their community in order to deliver them from injustices of the invading army, they did it for the love of the community. They were called noble or honorable. We speak of those today who, quote, pay the ultimate price, the ultimate sacrifice, right? What does that mean? They lay down their life, just as Jesus describes it here. They use the same kind of language that they would lay down their life for the community. Well, that's what Jesus did. 
we honor them. During Hanukkah, they celebrated heroes that stood in battle against the Hellenizing forces. Now, that's a fancy word, Hellenizing forces. What, what do I mean by that? Well, to be Hellenistic was Greek. It's just the word for the Greeks, right? The, the forces that were trying to bring the culture of the Greeks, that was the, the, the controlling army back at the time of the Maccabees, just like the Romans at this time, <clears throat> to bring that culture in on Judaism to force them into a different mode or culture, if you will. So during the time of Hanukkah, they, they celebrated those heroes like Judas Maccabeus who stood in the battle, his brothers who died in the battle <clears throat> against these forces that would try to make the Jewish religion less than pure, against those that were watering down their Jewishness, even against Jews who wanted to water down the Jewish religion, make it more acceptable <clears throat> with a bunch of Gentile cultural modifications. Jesus is laying down his life. But unlike these others that are being celebrated, he will take it up again. Now, that's unique. Nobody's ever claimed that. A lot of people that paid the ultimate sacrifice, we don't read about them. They paid the ultimate sacrifice, but then a few days later, they took it up again. and We don't read that, do we? But Jesus says, I will take it up again. Now, John 10 brings back ideas which were central in John chapter 6. If you remember John 6, there... Revolution was in the air. They wanted to make Jesus king by force. A bloodbath, if you will. A bloody revolution. There, in John 6, Jesus offered his life for the sheep in the form of his flesh and blood to eat and drink. Here, he lays it down on behalf of the sheep. There, in John 6, bloody, uh, bloodthirsty emperors and, or insurrectionists ate and drank the blood of the people, as we talked about there. But Jesus gives us his own flesh and blood to eat and drink. The opposite. Okay? Could Jesus here in John 10 be contrasting how he lays down his life with the, the blood-shedding ways of the Maccabees? Judas Maccabeus was given his name. By the way, his name was changed to Maccabeus from what it was prior to that after these battles because he had become known as the hammer. And that's what Maccabeus means is the hammer. Okay, He's Judas the hammer because he was so ruthless and violent in attacking these enemies and destroyed them and conquered them. They were celebrating this. He was the ideal insurrectionist. Jesus' nobility is different than the heroes of the world. He's one like a son of man, as the book of Daniel calls him. That was in contrast to one like a lion, one like these ferocious beasts and speedy beasts, a leopard and so on and so forth, like an eagle. No, he's like a son of man. He's not a war machine. He's not a beast. He's a lamb, as we see in the book of Revelation. He's one like a son of man whose kingdom shall never end. He has the Father's love for he does the Father's life-giving works, we know from Uh, many places here in uh, John's Gospel, including later in the chapter. At the end of the the Gospel, when the people choose Barabbas, for instance, over Jesus, they're in effect saying, give us Barabbas, no, don't don't give us Jesus. They're, They're in effect saying, we think a Messiah who kills the Romans would be better than one who merely helps the needy. Because, remember... We know from another gospel that Barabbas had killed 
And that's why he was in prison. He had killed in his insurrection. How might we be fooled today? Are there ways that, that we would prefer the power of the hammer over the love of Christ and laying down our lives on behalf of others? Our, our flesh still seeks glory through power. I don't know about yours, at least mine. I have to fight that. That's what I wake up with in the morning. That's what I have to fight in prayer. I think we all do. Some form or another. And if we don't see it, maybe that's even more dangerous. Our flesh still seeks glory through power, through elitism like the Pharisees. We're exceptional. We're better than others. John reveals that glory for our shepherd is found in the cross, laying down his life. Paul offers as proof of his apostle, apostolic calling, his being an apostle, that, that he bears the marks of the cross in his own life. Does the cross define the glory that you seek? It's, it's, it's almost like a team of, of, of superheroes, the Christian movement, whose superpowers are, quote, a unique ability to suffer on behalf of others. Or, quote, he endures mocking with great joy. Or, quote, she continues to do good to those who intend to do her harm. Now, those would not be a, hey, if you could pick a superpower, you know, some sort of game show or something. If you could pick a superpower or icebreaker for your, your gathering at Christmas, what would you pick, you know? Like to be able to shoot fire or freeze people or, you know, the various fly or be invisible. But how about... I'd like to be able to suffer with joy. To give up my possessions as if they are not my own. That is a superpower. And it is one that is powerful. When shepherds live for self-satiation, for self-glory, the glory of bloated egos that feed on what others think of us, the sheep suffer. The only way that the sheep receive abundant life is for the shepherd to lay down his life. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. In chapter 20. So we're called to go with the same life-laying-down methods, if you will, for others. The same nobility that the good shepherd has. Herman Ritterboss said the following. He said, Jesus does not picture all those who came before him, in verse 8, as bloodthirsty brutes, but what motivates them is not the well-being of the flock, but their own desire for uh, power. I'm sorry, there's a typo there. For power. The good shepherd knows his sheep. In the Old Testament, Yahweh knows his people. This means that he loves them, he chooses them, he speaks to them, he sees their suffering, he hears their cries. Yahweh, most high God, creator of heaven and earth, condescends to the level of knowing his people personally. He humbles himself. Knowledge. Sheep know, or the shepherd knows his sheep. The sheep know the shepherd. Knowledge means relationship. Intimacy, love. 
hireling shepherds have no interest in a personal relationship with the flock. They're too important for that. Then Jesus says that there are sheep that are not of this sheep pen. And that, that there'll be one flock and one shepherd when he gathers them. Now that verse stands in stark contrast to the ideas of the Maccabean revolt. <clears throat> and, the, and, and to the ideas of the Pharisees and their separatism. Jesus is talking about sheep that are from the Gentile nations. <clears throat> to bring them in so that they are one flock. Ephesians 2 talks about this. But that would mean possible contamination. That would mean cultural changes. I mean, if you think, like, healing a guy on the Sabbath is bad, that's what they kicked this other guy out of the, you know, you, you're okay with Jesus healing you on the Sabbath? Yeah, like I was blind for my whole life. He healed me on the Sabbath. Yes, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm perfectly good. What, you want me to have him make me blind again so you can try it on Monday? I mean, <clears throat> it's ridiculous. What do you think they're going to do with a guy celebrating Hanukkah with a big ham? <laughs> I mean, they, we got problems coming. Maybe celebrating the healing with a big ham. <clears throat> Jesus is a cosmic shepherd. His flock is worldwide. He brings the nations of the world into this flock. Brought into a new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above. That's the city to whom, to where, what, to which we belong. Will you recognize the shepherd's voice when he calls? Will you recognize the shepherd's voice when he calls? Many do not have an appetite for listening to the shepherd's voice. They would rather have a, a pep talk or a sermonette, a motivational speech. If we spend our lives listening to other voices who are not repeating the shepherd's voice, we may not know his voice when he calls. There are a lot of voices calling today. The sirens of our age. We must not be seduced by them. The New Testament letters repeatedly Warn us, caution us against, warn us against, sober warnings against these alternate voices. Paul writes, for instance, in 2 Timothy, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside the myths. Well, that may be true of the world, but that's not what he's referring to. He's talking about the people within, the, the religious folks. That should cause all of us to be very wary of what we think we want to hear. We've got to keep cutting from the original, coming back to it, always growing, always approaching it and saying, what is this about? Never trying to conform it to our own ways of thinking. And that's hard. That's difficult work. Jude, in the, the book of Jude, as we call it, letter, speaks of people who are, quote, blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. In Ephesians, Paul writes that the shepherd teachers, that the word pastor means it's simply the word shepherd. 
So a pastor is a shepherd. The shepherd teachers are to teach so that believers will, quote, no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. The, the job of a shepherd teacher is to teach so that, that you recognize false voices because you know the true voice. Of course, my job is to keep proclaiming the true voice over and over. Each of us here, that's our job, to keep proclaiming the true voice. But if, if we do that, winds will blow. Crafty and cunning speeches will come. Deceitful scheming. But you'll recognize it because it's not the true voice. You won't hear it. There are other voices. Sheep need to be wary. Sheep must, our shepherds must train the sheep to hear the shepherd's voice. Listen, just because Christ has come doesn't mean that thieves and robbers don't still masquerade as shepherds. Yeah, the Pharisees may be gone. But if you look around most churches, you'll find that they're not that far removed from our presence. They're all around. <clears throat> they come in the form of other voices, voices of doctrine. They come in the form of other voices that tell us about other ways to bring about God's kingdom on earth. Prayer and suffering are not the way, they tell us, but power and fighting. Churches succumb to that voice many times. We must all tune our hearts, tune our ears to the shepherd's call. And in order to do this, we must listen to truth and find shepherds who demonstrate the nature of Jesus, not the teaching that we think we want to hear. We define them by the nature of Christ, not by what we want to hear. Have you felt as if you were not welcome in the sheep pen, the kingdom of God, the city of God? Have you felt as if you were not welcome in, in the place of God's life-giving presence? Well, Christ is the one who welcomes you. He welcomes you in. He is the gate. He welcomes the poor and the needy. He gathers those who have been scattered. Have thieves been taken from you? Has the wolf been devouring you spiritually? Jesus came that you might have life. And such an abundance that you have enough that overflows in excess to others. That's what he has come to do in our midst. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we need to hear your voice fresh, freshly all the time. We need to keep our ears tuned to your flute, as it were playing a, the tune of the gospels, of the truth of Christ, the message of the kingdom of God. Lord, transform us through that message. Soften our hearts that we might hear it clearly. In Jesus' name.